Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God profitable for us. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Thus far the reading of the Lord's holy word. May he bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you might give us minds to receive the truth of God, soil prepared and equipped by God to receive the seed so that it might bring forth good fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're looking now at the privileges of the Israelites, considering what Paul calls the covenants. God willing, today we'll consider the New Testament teaching on the covenants, and Lord willing, we'll consider the Old Testament next week, and perhaps the following. Last week we saw the singular benefit, what he calls the glory. God adopted a people, made them a visible church. We saw that. And then he gave them his glory. We saw this in the cloud by which God revealed his glory. The fire was shown on Mount Sinai. The law itself, a glorious and fiery law. And then God calling the ark of his testament where the law was kept, where the manna was kept, where the rod of Aaron was kept, where the mercy seat above with the cherubim were kept, calls that the glory of Israel as well. We saw then that the means of grace are a tremendous benefit. God's ordinances, the means by which he shows himself to us, these are glorious. We saw a rebuke for a slight regard for the means of grace, despising or thinking less of than what God says is glorious, we might think down upon and we ought not to. We are to prize this singular privilege and to improve upon the means of grace that God has given us in his worship. Now then, verse 4. Who are Israelites, that is, the offspring of that holy patriarch Israel. We saw this both from the Old and New Testament usage. To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Now this word covenant is diatheke. I've discussed it on prior occasions. Let me give you a lexical definition from Freiburg's lexicon. He says basically a settlement as a legal technical term in settling an inheritance as common in the Greek and Roman worlds, last will and testament. Between two or more persons, a binding contract, agreement, or treaty. Predominantly in the New Testament, as in the Old Testament and Septuagint, a declaration of the will of God concerning his self-commitment, promises, and conditions by which he entered into relationship with man. I think that's a very useful definition. God's last will and testament 
a declaration of how he will enter into relation with men, and a self-commitment with promises and conditions by which he commits himself. Now, as we'll see, this idea also carries a secondary notion of contract, agreement, or treaty. But we'll note, together with Freiburg, that the primary meaning is testamental. The secondary is what we would call covenantal. Now, to prove this point, we will look at every instance of this term used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. Please open to Matthew 26, where we will take a look at all passages. We won't look at parallel passages referring to the same thing, but all passages that use this word diatheke, sometimes translated covenant. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, let me ask you a question. The shedding of Jesus' blood, is that a contract? Is that a treaty? Is that an agreement? Or is it God's disposition, self-commitment, his promises, and the conditions upon which he will enter into this last will and testament? What would you say? Well, it seems obvious. It's testament. It's not a covenant. It's not a treaty. It's not a league. He's not saying, my blood is the means by which you make a covenant with me. He's saying, no, I shed my blood for what? For the remission of sins of whom? Others. He does this shedding his own blood for the benefit of others that they might, what? Inherit eternal life. This same usage is made in Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, verse 20, and in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, all of which refer to the cup as the New Testament in the blood of Christ. Now let's turn over to Luke chapter 1. Page 1024. I had a minister in a Reformed denomination, I, well, I overheard him say this to someone I was sitting with, that somehow this idea of testament is absent from the New Testament. It's not there. And he further said that our confession of faith is mistaken when it says that God frequently refers to a testament. I will show you, no, our confession is not mistaken. This man was mistaken. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67. This is the father of John, Zacharias, filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Remember, the horn is the general going forth and pushing and destroying his enemies. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised 
to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, do we live for God's glory? Yes. Is that our treaty with God? Remember, he says, this is God's holy covenant. But whose covenant is it? His. Not our covenant with God. His covenant with us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. You see the testament? God did this for our benefit. He hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You see that? We are the heirs. He is the testator. Verse 70. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets. Verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies. Not we should save ourselves. Now we should come together in uh, bilateral agreement with God and assent to his covenant. That's what a covenant is, by the way. Co is together. Venere is to come. Covenant means coming together. This is not the word used in the New Testament. In fact, there is a word, syntheke, we'll look at it later. Soon is the Greek for co or together. And theke is to put a syntheke is where you put your terms together. You say this, I say this, we come to a contract, we make an agreement. We all consent. Is that what this is? Of course not. We are saved from our enemies. It's done to us by whom? By God the testator. Verse 72, to perform the mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which... Abraham swear? No. Which he swear to our father Abraham. That's what a covenant is in terms of the Bible and the New Testament. It is God swearing, taking an oath by himself for the benefit of others with the appointment of specific goods. That's what a covenant or a testament is. God grants us, verse 74, that's a testamental word, a gift he made, an oath he made for our benefit, for our blessing, through his word, which he spoke through those prophets. He raised up the horn of salvation. He saves us. That's a testament. Turn over to Acts chapter 3, page 1097. Again, this is an exhaustive study of the New Testament on the usage of the term diatheke, often, I would say, mistranslated as covenant. Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 25. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. 
Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Notice, is this an agreement of multiple parties that he calls a covenant? No, in fact, he calls them children of the prophets and of what? The covenant, which what? Our fathers made with God? Is that what he says? No. God made this covenant with our fathers. You are the children. You know what that is? Heirs in succession. Abraham is the original heir of God's testament. And then God said, not only you, but your seed after you. Your children will inherit these goods together with you. God made this covenant, not a bilateral covenant of multiple parties, a unilateral testament of one party, even God himself. Please turn over to chapter 7 of the book of Acts in Stephen's sermon. Toward the beginning of Stephen's sermon here, starting at verse 5. Acts 7, verse 5. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, that is, the land of Canaan. He gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, saith God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Notice the covenant of circumcision. Was this something where God sat down with Abraham and said, Listen, Abraham, I'd like you to figure out a right that signifies my gracious promise to you of this land and that I will be your God and the God of your seed. Let's come together and let's make a compact. Let's make a covenant. Let's make a league. Is that what God did? No. In fact, he refers to the inheritance in verse 5, which as of yet was not given to him, no, not even one foot that he could lay on and say, this is mine, but to whom did he give it? to his heirs. That's who he did. God made a promise that they would possess his seed after him. That's a testament. There's a testator, God. There's an heir, that's Abraham. And there are heirs in succession, that is his seed. And there are goods, the land itself, that the heirs would possess. That's a testament. That is not a covenant. Please open to Romans chapter 11. And once you see the testamental language of the New Testament, and then you go back and study the Old and see it everywhere, you're not going to be able to unsee it, I promise you that. Unless you're so hardened, you say, well, it has to be a covenant. Well, no, it doesn't. It has to be what God says. What does he say it is? Verse 26. 
And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Note here, irrevocable, sending a deliverer, turning them away from ungodliness, for this is my mutually agreed upon and assented to arrangement called a covenant. Can you imagine? This is my testament unto them when I shall take away their sins. Where are we in that? Well, we're heirs. We are recipients of good, and here in particular, the Jews themselves. Hardened as they are, God's going to send them a deliverer to turn them away from ungodliness because his gifts are irrevocable, as if the testator already died and the inheritance is in abeyance in this case. But notice, it's no mutual agreement it's no mutual stipulations. It's no assent on our part. This is God and God alone. Please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, what is a diatheke? Is it a covenant? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Now look down at verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Here, notice a couple of things. First is, Paul claims to be a minister of the New Testament. Now, who, pray tell, came up with the terms of this thing? Did God sit down with the people and say, look, you apostles, you people of the Jews, you newly converted Christians, please, we want your input, we'd like your feedback, Let's come to terms about this covenant. Is that what he said? 
Did he say, come together with me and we'll bind up terms for each other? Is that what he said? Is it a covenant? No, it is not. In fact, it's God taking his law and writing it upon fleshly tables of the heart. Is that something we do together with God? You know what we call that? Pelagianism. Man and God cooperate in our regeneration. It's called covenantalism, where the two parties come together in one covenant deal, and I say this and you say that. So if a person is covenantal, what do they generally end up as? Pelagian or semi-Pelagian? Why? Because they're saying the terms are drawn up together. The covenant is synergistic. It is not just God making terms. And they also, historically, have believed that the Bible is a mixture of both human and divine thought. Because notice verse 14. The reading of the old, what? The Old Testament. The codicil of his will. The declaration of our salvation. What is the exact manner of our salvation? Who are the heirs? How do they benefit? What are the goods they receive? Who are the successor heirs when the father dies? Who's his successor? Who takes his benefits for him? Here it is. The Old and the New Testaments. Who made these up? Men? Was it a covenant? They came together with God and, oh, Moses, he had some nice ideas. God, he had some nice ideas. Paul had some good ideas. You know who believes that? Covenantalists. They believe inspiration is a mixture of two parties coming up with one covenant. What does God say? My word, my testament, my gifts, my benefits, my heirs, I'll appoint it all. Galatians chapter 3. Again, what is this diatheke? We'll see the same adheres to the Old Testament word berith. Galatians 3, starting at verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereunto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the, what? Inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Do you see that little word promise? Do you see that little word inheritance? And do you see where it mistranslates diatheke as covenant? It's not talking about men bargaining together, coming together to create terms as Judas Iscariot will see bargained with the Sanhedrin for 30 pieces of silver, I'll give you Jesus. We mutually agree, here's our terms, here's our assent. We have a covenant. No, did they do that? No. God himself made promise. He made a covenant that is a testament in Jesus Christ and even among men, when they make a last will and testament and die, that testament is confirmed. Can you disannul it? 
Can you add to such a testament? You can't. Last will and testament confirmed by the death of the testator. Now, if you make a covenant, an agreement, can you disannul it? Yes. Can you add to it? Yes. As long as both parties consent, you can have an addition to a covenant. And the covenant can be ratified on both sides or one party can say, well, look, I don't accept that. How about we change this? And then if the other party agrees to that counteroffer, you have a covenant. Is that what he's talking about? Of course not. Covenants can be disannulled if both parties agree. Covenants can be added to with the consent of both parties. Can a testament after the death of the testator be disannulled? No. Can it be added to? It cannot. He's not talking about covenants. And you see that also. To Abraham and his seed, to the heir and the successor heirs, were these promises made. Christ confirmed that testament to Abraham himself. And the inheritance does not happen by covenants. You know what happens by covenants? Wages. You work under the terms of a covenant, what do you get? Wages. It stipulates in the covenant what your wages are going to be. This is why we call it a covenant of works in Adam. Here's your wages. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. That's your wages. Wages of sin, death. The wages of righteousness and obedience, life. That's a covenant. Because it sets forth your duties and the reward you will get should you fulfill the duties. What does a testament say? Promise, inheritance, heirs, confirmation, no disannulment, no adding thereto. Look over at chapter 4 of the book of Galatians. Galatians 4.22 For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these two, these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answer, answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children, but Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. What do mothers give birth to? Covenanters? No. Heirs. And if your mother is a slave, what do you inherit? Slavery. If your mother is a free woman, what do you inherit? Freedom. You see? This is not a covenant as a mutual agreement. This is something that when he came forth from a slave, he was a slave. He came forth from a free woman, he was a free man. You see, it's not something they earned. It's not something they agreed upon. It is passed down by inheritance to covenants or to testaments. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1180 of your pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Notice, Gentiles partake in covenants. What sort of covenants are these? Well, one, they're called covenants of promise. That is God himself making promise and fulfilling with his hand. And pray tell, is that a mutually agreed upon bargain where multiple parties come together and set the terms of it like a covenant? No. In fact, it's by the blood of Christ that the Gentiles once afar off are brought near to those covenants of promise. Who did that? The testator. By spilling his own blood. This is a testament. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Pardon this dragging on a bit, but I want to cover all the scriptures that use this word. Hebrews 7, 21 and 22. Verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now notice here a couple of things. In a testament, only one party swears. In a covenant, how many people do you suppose swear in a covenant? You ever been to a wedding? How many people swear at a wedding? Two. Why is that? Well, because it's a covenant. It's a mutual agreement. Each party agrees to do their specific duties to the other, and they agree that if they violate their covenant, God's going to kill them. That's actually what death do us part means. You might think it means till we die, which it does. But it can also mean that God steps in and has you put to death for committing adultery. That's what that means. Two parties covenant. They imprecate themselves and they say that God will judge them if they're lying about their covenant. So two parties swear. Look here. Who swore? The Lord swear. Singular. One party. One party swear. And will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made the surety of a better what? Covenant? No. It's a testament. And who makes sure, that's what a surety does, if there's going to be a lapse in the testament and some heirs won't inherit or some goods won't make it long enough, because that can happen in human covenants and testaments. A man might appoint an estate and the testator would say, I want this person to be the executor and that person might waste the estate and they will not get the goods. Is that going to happen in this testament? No, because God himself swore and he appointed a better mediator with a better testament with better promises. Jesus will make sure as the executor as well as the testator, he will ensure that all the heirs inherit. Look on the same page, chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. 
But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when we will make a new covenant. Does it say multiple parties are going to make this covenant? No. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Did you notice there? Who's doing all of this covenantal stuff? Who are the parties that swear? Who are the ones that ensure that the terms will come to pass? One party and one party only. It is a testament. God himself. Now the parallel passage is in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, quoting the same verses from the book of Jeremiah. Look over at chapter 9 on the next page, verses 3 and 4. We have here the second veil, the tabernacle called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the what? Testament. God's inheritance. God's choice. God's land. God's tabernacle. We see the same in a parallel passage, Revelation eleven nineteen, which we had in our scripture reading recently. Also notice verse 15 there of chapter 9. For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive what? The promise of eternal inheritance for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Do you see what God is saying? There must be the death of a testator. There must be an inheritance. And oh, by the way, that thing that I did with Moses, what was it? A covenant? No, it was a testament. So he goes on. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the what? Do you see it? Testament which God hath enjoined unto you. God is the testator. You may also view at your leisure chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, and chapter 13, verse 20, both referring to this testament as everlasting and as sealed in the blood of Christ. Now, in contrast with the usage of this word diatheke, covenant or testament, let us see the actual covenant word, soon tithemi. Please open to Luke 22. This is the actual word for a covenant. 
Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad. And note, what did they do? They covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Do you see the covenantal nature of this transaction? How many parties swear? At least two. One on behalf of the Sanhedrin. But it actually looks like the chief priests and scribes all together. And then who else? Judas Iscariot. What are the terms? Well, we'll give you money. And on your part, you promise to seek opportunity to betray him without tumult or scare. Without the multitude. In the absence of the multitude. Was this covenant kept? Yes. Was the bargain paid? Did he get his wages? Yes, he did, in fact. This is a proper covenant. Turn over to John chapter 9, please, for another proper covenant, an actual covenant, not something called a covenant, but it's actually a testament. John 9, verse 19. And they asked them, that is the parents of the blind man Jesus healed, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had covenanted. Soon tithemi, they had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. What was the arrangement? Was it a testament? One party swearing? No, they agreed to it. They all consented. They all gave their consent. They all swore that this is what the church will do, excommunicate anyone that confesses Jesus. This is a proper covenant. We see this also, the same verb used in Acts 23, 16 through 20, and Acts 24, verses 5 through 9. Both places referring to the consent of those or agreement of the parties. We also find it in the Septuagint. In 1 Samuel 22, verses 12 and 13, consent being given or agreement. In the apocryphal books, the same Greek verb is used for covenanting. Jonathan, it says in 1 Maccabees 9:70, they sent ambassadors that he should make peace with them and deliver them the prisoners. Here are the terms. Here's the covenant. Let's agree together. Ptolemy's ambassadors to King Demetrius, come, let us make a league betwixt us. Same verb, entering into a covenant. I note then this doctrine. From linguistic usage, even outside of Scripture, but especially in Scripture, 
what we generally translate and call a covenant is better referred to as a testament. Through linguistic usage and especially the usage the New Testament makes of this term, we ought to think primarily not in covenantal terms, but in testamental terms. Are there covenantal features to God's testament? Yes. But the fundamental idea is that of a testament, not of a covenant. This is very important. We have what you might call a covenantal testament, but the thing is a testament with covenantal features. God with diathekes is not making leagues. He's not seeking mutual consent. He's not seeking for men to make agreements with him. But rather, God is disposing of his own goods, appointing heirs, settling the terms without reference to anybody else. We call this unilateral, one-sided. One-sidedly settling the terms of his testament. He gives his son to die, to settle that settlement, that disposition. Christ's blood is the blood of the testator, shed for remission of sins. All this we have seen, whether in Luke chapter 1, God doing all the activities of the Testament, whether we have Stephen talking about Abraham being appointed as an heir and possessing land in his heirs, the irrevocability and the appointment of heirs in Romans 11, the confirmation of God's Testament through the death of Jesus Christ, or the gendering and offspring of slaves or free men in Galatians chapter 4. God is the covenanter. We are the beneficiaries. Christ is the testator. We are the heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. This then is a rebuke to those who believe that covenant is the central dogma of Scripture, the main point, the heart, the backbone. Many analogies are used. Oh, the covenant, that's the main point of the Bible. Well, first off, no, it's not a covenant. Second, is it an important doctrine, the doctrine of covenant? Yes, and we'll look at it, God willing, in the future. But this is not a covenant that we've talked about. This word, diatheke, is a testament. There is no covenant theology. We don't practice covenant communion. We don't have a covenantal worldview. We don't have covenant this, covenant that, covenant the other. No. God has made a testament. Covenant as a philosophical belief, as a precondition for thought, leads to the idea of equality and mutuality. Leads to egalitarianism. It leads to Pelagianism. It leads to man and God cooperating to make the Testament, the Bible, as a covenant book, so it has to reflect the thoughts of men as well as the thoughts of God. How else can you have a covenant? Are there aspects of mutuality even in God's Testament? Yes. One of the things God requires in His Testament is that you keep His commandments. His statutes are your inheritance. His law is in the Ark of the Testament. Yes, there are covenantal aspects. There are duties on both sides. We owe God allegiance. We owe Him obedience. But even there, who creates the statutes? Who creates the laws? 
Who sets the terms? God, the testator, and he alone. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. He does not request, require, or want our mutual assent to say, well, you can have those commandments if I say it's okay. No. No bargaining with God. That's what Saul did. He was a covenanter. Let's, let's bargain about this, God. I know you told me to do this, but I've got my ideas. Let's sit down at the table and figure it out. In exhortation then, let us bask in the glory of our redemption. The Testament theme of Scripture sums up our redemption. It is God putting His will through. Dia theke. He puts through what He desires. And what does He desire? The benefit for us. The irrevocable appointment of heirs. Nothing done by us to earn our inheritance. All of His free grace let us recognize then that God has adopted us. He made the testament. He swore by himself. He made Christ the testator. He made Christ also the surety of that testament. And this gives us, by God's grace, the assurance of our salvation. Furthermore, God as the testator writes with tables of flesh on the heart his laws. He adopts us, he recreates us, he appoints us as his heirs. Let us then long for his statutes to keep his commandment as our inheritance. The statutes of God are the rejoicing of our heart. We've been forgiven and redeemed by his testament. Let us then serve him, as Zacharias said, in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have appointed heirs, that you have appointed a testator, that you have appointed the goods that we might receive. Make us to rejoice in you, in all that you have done for us. And likewise, O oh God, make us to rejoice in our inheritance in your statutes, that they might be the joy of our hearts, that we might walk in your ways as your heirs. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles for the singing of God's praise to Psalm 5. As we sing this portion of God's Word, let us call upon the Lord. Let us beg Him to hear and to bless us. Let us not be wicked or foolish, but rather use the means of grace in God's abundant grace and in holy fear. Please stand for the singing of God's praise to the chief musician upon Nehaloth, a psalm of David. I'll hum the tune and we'll sing together to God's praise. Da 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 da. Let's sing. Give ear unto my words, O Lord, my meditation way. Hear my light cry, my King, my God, for I to Thee will pray. Lord, Thou shalt early hear my voice, 
I early will direct my prayer to thee.